Good morning, my beloved church. That is the most anemic response. I flew back for this. Good morning, my beloved church. Thank you. Yeah, that's better. I spent the, uh, most of the week, I flew back Friday night in uh, Orlando uh, with what has become my favorite annual conference is the gathering of the pastors, senior pastors of the largest churches of our denomination. There's stuff that we deal with that no one else can quite understand, and it's a blessing to be with a group of guys that really gets it, you know, and we share fellowship, and there's not a lot of, there's no braggadocio at all. It's a wonderful, gracious, humble gathering, and we have about a quarter of our number are now youngsters, 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds who are taking these big pulpits, and, and so they are just kind of drinking in the opportunity to hang out with guys that are a little longer in the tooth like yours truly and, and just share what, what it is like and how to avoid some of the bruises that we've taken over the years. So it's, it's really sweet. And the chance to play a little golf in Orlando at this time of year, that's not bad either. That's not bad either. There are some things that went on while I was gone that we really need to celebrate. So first of all, number one is this. Wednesday night, we had our first gathering of Alpha, uh, the, the, you know, the, the opportunity for people to come and ask any question they might have about the faith. We had 140 people who showed up for that thing. Isn't that awesome? I got to admit that my faith was not that big. I was praying for 50 people and uh, the Lord said, oh, you, you are such a wimp. So uh, congratulations to Ellis and to Madison Leon, who while Ellis was in Babylonian captivity was really pulling all of this uh, together. It was such a great outcome, and uh, it's not too late. Uh, if you haven't, uh, if you want to come, or if you've got a friend that you would like to come who wants to know about, more about the Lord, uh, and ask some questions in a safe place. Next Wednesday night, 6 o'clock, come. Have free dinner, and uh, it'll be great. The other thing worth celebrating is this. This last week, we passed another $500,000 threshold in our journey towards being debt-free. And uh, not only that, we, we not only passed that threshold, the money kept coming in, and enough that we were actually able to inform the bank that we are ready to pay off one of our three mortgages completely. You, you have no idea how excited this is for me. I have been waiting nearly my whole ministry here to be able to say, we are paying off one of our mortgages. And so we're going to save the burning of the mortgage till April when we have a little Beyond These Walls uh, celebration, mini celebration. But good for you and thank you for your part in that, large and small. Just to set it in context, context last July, we had $5.4 million in debt. That's a big number. Today, it's $3.7 million. That's so... So thank you. Thank you for being a part of that. It's pretty darn exciting. And wait until we free those resources up what the Lord is going to be able to do. Well, last week we resumed, after an Advent break, we resumed our journey through the, the book of Romans. Paul's gospel, according, you know, to, you know really, that's it's his gospel rendition, uh, the book of Romans. And we were in chapter 6, this magnificent passage of Scripture. And chapter 6 starts off with a question from Paul's critics. Um, they are very suspicious about something he's teaching on, this, this idea of grace. They don't like it at all. Let me remind you what this is all about. Paul's already told us that every single human being is broken. Every one of us is bent. Our, our, our attention, our love, our affections are turned away from God. And because of something called sin, there's nothing we can do about it. That's pretty bad news. But the incredible good news that Paul has shared with us in Romans is this, that what we couldn't do anything about God has taken care of. 
through his son Jesus who came to earth and lived a sinless life and died on the cross and was raised to new life and and somehow in a way we will never understand he paid the price of our sin. And if we believe that, if we receive that incredible kindness from the Lord, we too are saved. We are, our sins are washed away and we are invited to be children in his family. That's an incredible piece of good news. And the motivation for behind this, the motivation for God's kindness to do such a thing, we describe with the word grace. Would you say that? Grace. Say it again. Say it like it's amazing. Because it is. It is amazing. Grace is such a wonderful concept, this idea of God's unearned, unmerited favor. I know I've pounded, pounded, pounded on this, but if you hear nothing else out of the book of Romans, I want you to hear God's grace, that despite who you are, despite what you have done, God said, I love you. I'm going to do something about this. I want to draw you back into relationship with myself. This idea of his loving kindness, I think it is the most sublime, the most extraordinary word in the religious lexicon, and it belongs only to the Christians. There's not another religion in the world that has this idea of unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor from a God who says, I'm just going to do that because I want to, because I can. Americans have a hard time believing this. It's almost impossible for us to believe. We can do Americans who are going to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We really want to help God along. We want to make things a little easier on the Lord by being good, by going to church and by obeying the Ten Commandments and all this other stuff that we think somehow is kind of give, going to give God a, a divine leg up on our own salvation. The truth is Americans have problems with grace because we don't want to need God's grace. We don't want to need God's grace. We would like to help at least, if not be responsible for, for all of it ourselves. That's, that's our American problem. But the opponents of Paul at the time, they had a different kind of an issue. And Paul kind of sums it up at the beginning of chapter 6. He summarizes their complaint. It goes something like this. You're saying that, uh, it, that everyone's sinful. But because everyone is sinful, God is able to offer his grace and save them from that sin because his grace is greater than the sin. So then, what's to stop you from just saying, let's go ahead and keep on sinning? If grace is a good thing and sin is a chance for grace to be revealed, then let's just sin like crazy so that God's grace may really be poured out in greater and greater measure. Remember, there's a, a word for that, that idea that we're just going to live recklessly because God gets a chance to forgive us again. What is the word for that? Remember? A bear, who said that? Jonathan! Stand up right now to the applause of your adoring crowd. Yes! Awesome! Antinomianism. Antinomianism. And it means against the law. It means who needs the law? Who needs the rule book? You got God's grace. What does Paul say to that? No stinking way. God forbid. That is a horrible way to deal with this gift of grace, Paul says. And he uses baptism as an illustration. Remember? The first, bap- the first illustration is this. With Christ, and when we go under the waters of baptism, it's like we are buried with Jesus. We die, we're crucified with him, we're buried with him. And when we come out of the waters of baptism, it is like we are raised to new life in the same way that Jesus was raised up to resurrection. And Paul says, now since your old, dead, wormy, mealy, smelly self has been buried with Christ, why in the world would you want to crawl back into that tomb? 
Why would you want to fiddle with the dead stuff that the Lord put away and left? Last week was pretty warm in Orlando, which was nice because a couple weeks before that huge uh, storm came through, that icy storm, and it was freezing, even in, or- even in Florida. In fact, there was a very unusual phenomenon that resulted because of the cold weather. Falling iguanas. Did anyone hear the story of, of the falling iguanas? See, the temperature drops, and when the temperature got below 40 degrees, iguanas, their blood doesn't work very well after 40 degrees. And so the iguanas who live in the trees, when the temperature came down below 40 degrees, they just start falling out of the trees. We got pictures of them here, but they were... Let's show the next picture. Yeah, there they are. They got entire neighborhoods where you could hear the sound of, of the thuds of, of lizards falling out of the trees around you on your lawn and on your pool deck. One guy decided that he was going to be the good Samaritan for the, for the iguanas, so he's going around kind of cleaning up all the reptilian carnage. He picked up these iguanas and he put them in the back of his station wagon. <laughs> you know what happened, right? There was a little reptilian resurrection. That which was dead is, was made alive. And suddenly this guy's got a bunch of very ticked off iguanas that are crawling around in his station. He, had a, he crashed his car. It wasn't pretty. Now, if you saw that guy putting those iguanas in, into his car, you might say, what are you doing? Stop that. That is just stupid. And there's a sense in which Paul is saying, in, your, in Christ, your old sinful self is dead. Leave it that way. You don't want to resuscitate that. You don't want to bring that back to life. Leave it alone. Leave it where it is. That's just stupid to do anything else. That's his first response. Your old sinful self is dead. Don't touch it. Leave it in the tomb where it belongs. But he's not content. He wants to go a little deeper. And so he kind of repeats the same accusation from them. And he responds in a new way with a new image. Not baptism, but something else. Something very powerful, very graphic. And so I want you to listen to that as we start in chapter 6, verse 15. And continue in our journey through this great chapter, okay? Here's the words of Paul. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are under the law? Not un, because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means, he says. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it ends in eternal life. For the wages of sin, this is your next memory verse, verse verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's repeat that last one together. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now close your eyes and do it again. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you really closed your eyes, you did very well. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you, God, for this word. And speak to our hearts this day that we might be more and more your children. For Christ's sake, amen. Last November, Cindy and I uh, traveled back to Washington, D.C. It was part business and part pleasure. Um, the pleasure was the chance to be with our daughter, and we went to D.C., and we visited the Bible Museum, and we walked the mall. By far, my favorite uh, site in Washington, D.C. is the Lincoln Memorial. And so we walked to the end of the mall, and we walked up those stairs, and there's a magnificent statue there. And if you walk up that way, and then you turn to the right, and you'll see ins- ins- uh, inscribed on the wall the text of Lincoln's greatest speech. And you might think, was that the Gettysburg Address? No, that's over on the left, and it's not his greatest speech. His greatest was his second inaugural address in which he he spoke in the middle of the Civil War of the not-yet-finished battle to eradicate slavery and to restore the Union, to preserve the Union of the country. It's it's a magnificent text. If you've never read it, it, you ought to. And so, once again, I reread it. And then I turned from looking at that text, and this is the view that I got as I look back out across the sun that was setting on uh, on the Washington Monument. Take a look at this. It was gorgeous. Yeah, Cindy took that picture. It was just exquisite. And so we drank that in, and really, as I stood there, I realized I was standing on the place where another man's greatest speech was uttered. It was a speech that was offered by Dr. Martin Luther King uh, to 200,000 folks who had gathered there. And you recall that speech because of one famous line, which is what? I have a dream. Say it with me. I have a dream, he said. But there's more to that speech. In that speech, he laments the fact that even though it's been a century since the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed, he said there was still the residue of slavery still existed in the country. And I want to quote part of what he said. 100 years later, he said, the Negro is still not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. So we have come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. There's a sense in which Paul in this portion of this chapter is dramatizing a shameful condition. That shameful condition is that, that this, uh, this group of accusers would, would, would dare to say that they were using grace as an excuse to behave badly. That they would dare to claim that they were going to mock and presume upon this incredible gift of, of God's grace. And to deal with this question, he uses a very stunning and troubling image, which is the image of slavery, just as Dr. King did. Um, the, the Roman uh, society was uh, built around the, uh, the institution of slavery. There were more slaves than there were free people, by far. Um, the difference in Roman slavery versus 19th century American slavery and 18th century American slavery is that it was not built upon that hideous idea of the superiority of one race over another. Because any race could be a slave in Rome. If you were kidnapped, if you were defeated in battle, you could be a slave. Some slaves were babies that were picked up off the garbage dump because they had been placed there by their mother because they, they didn't want them. And so they'd be picked up and sold into slavery. And, and some slaves were those who just sold themselves into slavery because they were impoverished and they didn't know how they were going to live. But the conditions for the slaves in Roman times and in 18th and 19th century America were in many ways similar. They had no civil rights. They had no legal rights. They could be punished by the master in any way he wished up to and including killing them or torturing them uh, without any kind of, uh, you know, any ramifications for that. 
um, there were some slaves who would choose to, uh, after they had been set free by a good master, they would actually choose to sign back on to continue as a slave in the master's house. But that was pretty rare. And frankly, apart from that, um, slavery was considered to be a, not a very noble station in Roman life. Uh, very few uh, freemen aspired to be slaves, and every slave aspired to be free. So in a sense, it's kind of a shocking image that Paul pulls out, this image of slavery, to talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He starts by likening sin to slavery. He says that sin is like a harsh, um, brutal taskmaster. But he goes on to say, but the good news is that because of God's grace, you are no longer uh, living under the tyranny of sin. He says, instead, in Christ you are what? Well, that's what you'd think. That's what you'd think. You'd think free. You'd think you were slaves to sin, but now in Christ you are free, except that's not what he wrote, is it? Paul says that we are no longer slaves to sin because we have become slaves to what? Righteousness. We have exchanged one master for another. This isn't what we expect. It isn't even what we like, this idea of having traded one master, the underlord sin who works for the evil force, Satan, for another master, the underlord righteousness who works for the Lord Jesus. We, we still don't like that idea. We human beings only want one master. Which master do we prefer? Us, exactly. It's the, it's the original sin of, of Eden. They, they were told there's one thing you can't do is eat of this tree. Because in doing so, you're trying to know what God knows. You want to be God. And they said, we like that idea. We're going to eat of that tree because we want to call our own shots. We want to decide what is right and wrong. Or we might say it in modern parlance, we want to determine what is our truth. Our truth, which is the stupidest thing ever. They wanted to be their own lords. And we still do. The problem is, and this is the heart of this section of Scripture... That's not an option for us. Human beings were not created for that kind of freedom. From the moment that God breathed life into Adam, there was laid upon him the obligation to do what his Lord, God, had told him to do. We celebrate the Declaration of Independence, which declares that we have unalienable rights from our Creator, which include life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But Paul would say, well... Liberty isn't actually one of God's unalienable rights for you, at least not spiritual liberty. That's not a choice that is available to you. There's a singer and songwriter from, well, before you guys were born. His name is Bob Dylan. And he, he, um, he wrote a song, You've Got to Serve Somebody. You heard? You're nodding your head as if you know. You, are, you two are with it today. Awesome. You've got to serve somebody, he said. And in in this case, you can serve the master called sin, or you can serve the master called righteousness in Christ, but you've got to serve somebody. Not serving somebody is not an option. And so the clear, and for some, would have been the shocking teaching of Paul here, is not that we exchange the tyranny of sin for liberty, but rather that we exchange the tyranny of sin for the gracious tyranny of Jesus Christ. And you know, we have a word for that. It's called lordship. 
What do we think we mean when we say that Jesus is Lord? Our advisor? A good guy to pay some attention to? No, it means he is Lord. He is the master and we are his followers, his servants. Last year I saw a movie called The Bridge of Spies with Tom Hanks. And it was a story about a Soviet spy in the Cold War who was caught in the United States. And he was exchanged for Gary Powers. Gary was the pilot of a U-2 spy plane that was shot down over Russia, flying around at 80,000 feet in the air or something. He was shot down. And so they exchanged these two spies. And, uh, and you see the image of this in the movie. Well, when Powers was standing, and the exchange took place on a bridge, a bridge between the eastern communist country and the western free country. So obviously when Powers is standing on that bridge, he has a decision. Am I going to stay here or am I going to go over there? I'm going to be beholden to this group or am I going to go over to the other side? The option that he didn't have, however, was to stop halfway across the bridge, set up camp there and said, I think I just live in halfway. You know, I'm just going to live here in limbo. I want to make my own little place. And the the analogy breaks down, of course, but that's exactly what's going on here for us. We don't have the choice to say, no, I don't want that master, and I don't want this master. I'm going to live in limbo. There is no limbo. There is no choice. Think of it in a different way. If you're a kid in the projects in, 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 uh, uh, in Chicago, even if you don't want to, you're probably going to join a gang. Because it is not safe to live on your own. You cannot go solo. And so you'll join the Crips, you'll join the Bloods, but you're going to join somebody because you can't be on your own. The difference for us is this. We have exchanged the authority of a dark Lord who hates us, who has been working for our destruction from the beginning. We've exchanged that authority, which by the way, rests upon every single human being by default. We've exchanged that authority for the authority of the Lord of light, who loves us, and who, by the way, became a slave for us. Isn't that what Philippians 2 says? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. So we exchange the tyranny of the Lord of light for the, for the obedience to the Lord, um, for, of the Lord of darkness, for the obedience to the Lord of light, who made himself a slave, came to earth, suffered, died, and rose again so that we might be delivered to new life. That's the choice that we have. And this becomes Paul's second answer to his critics. You know, the first answer was this. No! You're not going to mock grace by behaving badly. And the reason you don't do that is because you are dead to all of this stuff. Why in the world would you crawl back into the grave? And the second reason now is is this. No, you're not going to mock the grace of God. You're not going to presume upon God's grace by behaving badly. Why? Because you do not belong to yourself anymore. You belong to a new master and his name is Jesus. And he is gracious. He is good, and he purchased you from that tyrannical master sin from the slave block, and that is a wonderful thing for you, but in a sense, you have exchanged one captivity for another. You now belong to Jesus. You are a slave of Christ. And what is the one cardinal virtue of a slave who wants to survive in that capacity? Obedience. Obedience. That's what a slave has to be, is obedient if he wants to survive. And you'll find that word appears again and again and again through this passage. I think it's mentioned four or five times. We are called as slaves of Jesus to be obedient to him. 
As slaves of Christ, we have freedom, but it is a certain sort of freedom. Listen to this. It is not the freedom to live as we want. It is the freedom to live as we ought. For the first time in Christ, we have the freedom to live as we ought, the way we were created to live. For the first time, we have the power to break free from sin. For the first time, we have the power to live holy lives and cast off chains of addiction and abuse and anger. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not occasionally going to stumble. But it does mean that the trajectory of our lives is suddenly different. We are no longer living in persistent rebellion against God. Rather, we are on track to become better and better and better. One degree of glory to another, to another. For the first time in your life, in other words, Paul says, in Christ, you are free to obey what is right and to resist what is wrong. He sums it up in verse 16 in this little paragraph, little passage, the part of the, the sentence there where he says, you are slaves to the one you obey. Think about that. You are slaves to the one you obey. Whoever you obey, that's your master. And here's the thing that you discover. The more you obey, the easier it is to obey. The more you obey, the easier it is to obey. Whichever master you are following. Let's say that you're choosing to follow the master of sin, of sla- uh, the slavery that is ours below, beneath the, the dark lord of our life. If you are quick to respond to the temptations of that enemy, you're going to develop patterns that make it easier and easier to respond. Habits. The St. Augustine called them your disposition. When you make a decision in one direction, it, the, and neurologists will tell you it's true, you actually begin to build patterns, brain patterns, neuron patterns in your brain that make it easier the next time to make that same decision, to move in that same direction quicker and with less regret. It's like ruts in a road. We have a place in Sprague that we love to go to to hunt birds and to, and to four-wheel. And it's great, but in the rainy season, it is so rutted. The ruts are so deep that once you get your, your four-wheeler in there, you can hardly get out of the ruts. You just kind of follow the ruts wherever they lead you. And there's a sense in which you, in the choices that you make, and the master that you choose to follow, you begin to build those ruts into your spirit. First time you click on porn, the first time you click on porn, it was difficult, and it was guilt-inducing. The next time it became a little easier. The next time a little easier. And each time after that until finally your disposition is set, you are rutted. Same is true the first time you smoked that joint or the first time you slept with someone that was not your spouse or the first time you began to comfort eat or binge spend or use bad language. Every time you obey a master in one area, your brain is shaped, it is bent in a certain direction and it becomes easier and easier to do it and harder and harder to stop. But here's the good news. We have discovered that in Christ, by the power of his spirit at work within us, you can get out of your ruts. You can, for the first time, choose to obey a new master. And the very synapses that you were imprinting with your bad behavior that made it easier and easier for you to to do bad, you begin to bend in a different direction, in a life-giving direction. You become a better person, bit by bit. Paul calls this process sanctification. That's another shun word. 
Justification is where we start our journey where God declares us forgiven because of our faith in Christ. Glorification is when we are taken up into glory to to be with God in heaven forever. But in between there is that season of sanctification where he takes what is promised and begins to make what we long for to come someday. This is the season that most of us, if we are in Christ, are living in right now, is the season of sanctification. And so to take the same idea in another direction, the first time you choose not to sleep with your boyfriend might be hard, might be difficult. But you make that decision, and then the next time you reinforce it, and the next time you reinforce it, and you begin to bend your disposition in a new way. You're developing life-giving ruts, if, if I could put it that way. The first time you go to to Alpha, it might be very tough and very scary to walk in there and wonder what you're going to find. But then you go back and you do it a second time and a third time. And pretty soon, that circle of people around that table has become your friend. And you, you you feel trust. The first time you pray with your spouse is scary. You do it again and you begin to form life-giving ruts. The first time you tithe is enormously scary. Can you really trust God to give away that much money? And then you find that God is faithful to his promises to bless you. And you like being generous. And you're beginning to develop new habits, a new disposition. The first time you walk in to celebrate recovery because you want to break free of the demon that has you in, in alcohol. It's a terrifying thing. And then you discover if you come back again and again, suddenly your bend is changing, your disposition is changing, and you're you're going in a new way because of the grace of the Spirit. Verse 16 says, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Professor Jim Edwards from Whitworth University, he put it this way in his commentary, which I find so helpful. He says, living under grace, living under grace, remember that's the whole issue of this chapter. Living under grace means that we have freedom for obedience, not an excuse for disobedience. But I need to be crystal clear about this. We do not obey in order to be saved. We're back to the old works righteousness if we do. We do not obey in order to be saved. We obey because we have been saved. Obedience is not a prerequisite for salvation. Obedience is the fruit of our salvation. Because Christ has saved us, because he has set us free, because he has given us his spirit, we are able to obey, to do what we were never able to do before. Which is why Jesus said to his disciples, and you can hear the frustration in his voice, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Do you hear it? I mean, he's just so frustrated. It's also why he said, you will know you are my disciples if you obey my word. You're the slaves of the one whom you obey. That's That's the way you find out who you're following. I have a wonderful story that I want to share with you. I did not coach this guy. This is just his story of what God has done here in his life. And I want you to hear this remarkable story. So I grew up in the church, uh, but I walked away from my faith as a young man. I joined the fire service and I had a good career. And by outside accounts, I had a successful life. Only those that were closest to me knew that I was a functional alcoholic and I struggled with a pornography addiction. And I was, a, I was a slave to alcohol and sexual impurity for 40 years. It, it ruled my life. So God used Celebrate Recovery 
the Celebrate Recovery Program to deliver me almost two years ago. And now I serve him instead of the addictions. Uh, as I've continued to learn and, and heal and grow and celebrate recovery, God's he's given me this passion for prison ministries. Um, and he's led me to actually start a celebrate recovery at the prison in Shelton. Uh, each Wednesday night, we actually meet there with 30 men and share the love of Jesus Christ and the hope and healing that he brings. And, uh, and so I became involved with the Thai Go team because that's what House of Blessing does. They, uh, they serve the incarcerated and the people that love them. God in his mercy, over the years that I struggled with addiction, protected me from, uh, from getting a DWI or having a car accident and injuring people. Um, maybe he called me to prison ministry because for all those years, he allowed me to wear a blue uniform instead of an orange one, simply by his grace. And I'm reminded of that every time I walk through those prison doors behind the galvanized fences and the razor wire. I love one of his lines. He said, I was a slave to alcohol and sexual impurity for 40 years, but now I serve Jesus instead of my addictions. Isn't that what Paul's talking about here? Isn't that exactly what we're talking about here? We love to think of ourselves as the captains of our soul. There's even a famous poem about that called Invictus. But it's an illusion. You have a choice of one of two masters. You can work for sin or you can work for Christ. And by the way, did you notice that there's a retirement plan that's attached to each one of those options? Verse 23, right? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's your retirement plan option. The wage, of course, is what we earn. It's what we deserve. And if we choose sin as our master, the underlord of of Satan, then the pay that we deserve, the wages that we have earned, is death. And not just immediate death here, but a life that is lifeless, a life that is purposeless, and ultimately spiritual death that separates us from the God that we did not want to know. So that's what you can earn if you want to earn your way in this world working for this master. But did you notice the language for the other choice that we have? The, the other option, the, notice the benefits. It has nothing to do with wages. Did you see that? There's nothing about our pay that we deserve. The language is now, what, what is it we receive if we make ourselves slaves to Christ? A free gift. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's free. It's a gift. What's another name for that magnificent free gift? What do we call it? Grace. Grace. Yes. And so suddenly we find ourselves circling back around to the very first part of chapter 6. Again, we return to this incredible, incomprehensible gift of God's grace to us. The greatest word in the Christian lexicon. So, I want to ask this. How does this sit with you? I suspect it sits pretty well with most of us, but if you think of Christianity as kind of your eternal fire insurance policy, and God is like your spiritual 911 operator that you call just in times of emergency, but otherwise you got it pretty wired, then I don't think this is going to sit well with you at all. But if you claim that Jesus is the Lord of your life, but you have never thought of it in terms of slavery, that is, that you are God's slave and that you owe him utter and absolute allegiance, 
then I suspect that Paul's description of what it means to follow Christ in this way is going to be tough for you to swallow. But those are the terms. And if, if looking at this passage helps you to understand in a new way that Jesus is your master, your benevolent master, but he's your master, that he loves you, everything he asks of you is for your good, whether it appears to be that way or not, and yet he also demands obedience. If you can understand that, then it's going to help you to begin to live into the sanctified life of salvation into which you were baptized. You are slaves to the one whom you obey. Whom are you obeying? Who is your master? Paul would ask. Let's pray. Lord, I think there are many here, probably most here, who would raise their hand and say, the Lord is my master. But there are some here who would not. Some who came to visit, some who are, are just trying to figure this whole Christian thing out. And God, we're so grateful they're here. But if that's you, if that describes you, I would just invite you to consider your options. You have the, the mastery, the tyranny of the Lord of darkness who wants your destruction. Or you have the, the mastery the benevolent tyranny of the God who loves you, who became a slave for you, who died for you, so that you might have eternal life with him. It's not a hard call to make. And if you would say right now that you're living in the delusion of trying to be your own Lord, your own master, even now would be a chance for you to say, God, forgive me, I didn't know. But now I see that I cannot be my own master and I don't want sin to be my master, so the only choice, Lord, is for me to bow before you and receive the gift of your son Jesus. And so I do that right now. Even now, if you do that, God would be delighted to welcome you into his family and pronounce you clean and begin a journey of life that takes you from one degree of glory to another, a life of sanctification. But there might also be some, I suspect nearly all of us here, who though we know Jesus, though we call him Lord and we mean it, There are still these little sections of our life that we retain lordship over or pretend to. And if that's you, if if it brings to mind what you did last night in front of the computer, if it brings to mind the way that you spoke to your spouse this morning, if it brings to mind the way that you behaved with your date this last Friday, if there are things about your life that you would have to admit you are not living in obedience to the Lord, and this is your moment to think about those, to lay them before God in all of his grace and say, would you forgive me? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Would you, would you build a new disposition in me in this area of my life? Would you, would you r- help me to r- build life-giving ruts that take me in the direction of life and hope and freedom and not bondage? Lay those things before the Lord even now. God, I'm sorry. Help me to be different. Help me to be better by your spirit. I want to be more like Jesus.